We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Lori on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. So if you aren't a patient of mine and you haven't gone back and listened to the episode on the Empowered Motherhood Program, listen up. Actually, everyone listen up because this is amazing. The Empowered Motherhood Program is an incredible online program and mobile app that combines physio-led exercise and expert education for every stage of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal journey. It's created by the Australian Physiotherapy Association's titled Women's Health Physiotherapist, Liz Evans, and Pregnancy and Postnatal Exercise Specialist and former elite netball athlete, Kimmy Smith. It has week-by-week programs which start from five weeks of pregnancy all the way through to the first year postpartum. Alongside Kimmy and Liz, the EMP includes expert interviews with an obstetrician, psychologist, dietitian, midwife, and more. The pregnancy program has been created with up-to-date medical pregnancy guidelines and includes a combination of strength, Pilates, cardio, and bar classes, but I know some people call them barre, but with a French background, seriously, it's bar. Um, Yoga, guided meditation, a program for women experiencing pelvic girdle pain, and a complete birth preparation series, which includes physio-led birth prep classes, as well as expert interviews and education. The postnatal program is designed to be started from birth and their birth recovery program includes both vaginal and C-section week-by-week recovery programs. It includes functional progressive exercises to help women return to exercise safely and confidently. It has programs for pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor injuries such as incontinence and obstetric injuries such as anal sphincter tearing, as well as a complete eight-week return to running program. They offer a free trial for maternal health care providers, so you can look around the app and you can also have the option to list your clinic on the Empowered Motherhood program, find a physio page, so you can receive referrals from their members. So head to empoweredmother.com.au or look for the link on the show notes. We're on. We are on. Yeah. <laughs> I know, we'll all be quiet. We're so excited. <laughs> I know. It's like Christmas morning, <laughs> waiting for her to appear. Coming. Ben's. Hello. Oh, it takes forever for me. Um, well, thank you so much, Margie, for like coming on your summer holidays, sort of. And oh, no, I'm back from holidays now. Okay, you are working, yeah. so you're on the clock, but not really oh, on yeah. the clock at eight thirty. But we were just talking oh. about your background because mm-hmm. I was reading about your four degrees, um, and oh. I was explaining that kinesiology in Australia—it's not exercise physiology. Just, mm. Yeah, it's a little oh. bit 
Okay. Yeah, the yeah, it's so it's very different. So I was trying to explain um, what mm. kinesiology was for Australians, um, okay. and that what I didn't mention too is that you're an associate professor at the University of Alberta, and you have 173 items listed on ResearchGate, which I didn't believe, and then I looked and I went, oh my god, yes, you do, and understandably because we have read so much of your stuff, um, and. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your main interests with research are the role of physical activity during pregnancy and postpartum period on maternal fetal health. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And that is why we have asked you onto the Pelvic Health Podcast today, because we want to talk all about your research. And as I said in the email, it's really hard because you have so much and you have so much knowledge and we want to spend six hours asking you everything, but we can't. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought we would attempt to break it down to discuss the guidelines in pregnancy that you worked on, um, especially the new ones in 2019, and then mm -hmm. get into the athlete stuff in pregnancy and postpartum. So we are going to start, Tam is going to start us off um, and we'll get into the um, first bit. Tam, take it away. Hi, Margie. <laughs> I'm Tam. I haven't really introduced myself yet. We're just so excited to speak to you because you've written these guidelines, you know, 2019. It's amazing, the pregnancy exercise guidelines. And to be able to talk to you about them is ridiculous. And in fact, I was, I think I was um, listening to a different podcast that potentially you were talking on and just stalking you in the background there. <laughs> um, it's quite hard to write a guideline, like in the first place, right? It, it needs to be backed by tons of research, but also applicable to a lot of the population. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, although to be fair, there are a wide variety of different guidelines that can be written and are actually out there available. Um, so for example, back in 2003, the uh, Canadian guidelines for exercise during pregnancy in the postpartum period were developed. Um, they were primarily developed based on expert opinion. Um, so that's not the strongest uh, way to develop guidelines, but it's simply a reflection of the level of evidence that was available at the time. There was very limited evidence. Uh, so for the 2019 Canadian guideline, uh, we use the gold standard methodology, which is agreed to and grade. Uh, it's also the most rigorous and transparent, uh, which yes. means uh, basically we have to do a lot of extra work and uh, detail and make sure that we check all the boxes. Um, but at the end, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, I was, I led the, the panel that developed it, um, but we were quite a large pan-Canadian team um, that put a lot of uh, heart and sweat equity into it. And we're quite proud of the, the result. Yeah, amazing. Can you um, tell us what the guideline says? So a few of the main points in there. Sure. So, I mean, there were six key recommendations mm -hmm. um, that the guidelines uh, put forward. Um, briefly, we recommended that women who did not have contraindications engage in at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity spread over three or more days of the week throughout pregnancy. And so we recommended that um, pregnant individuals engage in a combination of aerobic and uh, resistance training. Um, but we were also one of the first to recommend um, pelvic floor muscle training as well, which is really important. And um, when we first started uh, in 2015, uh, we weren't talking about the importance of pelvic floor muscle training at that time. Uh, so things have really changed. Um, but I think 
just sort of backing up a little bit, when we talk about the recommendations, um, it's also really important to think about and understand um, how they were developed. And so I mentioned agree to and grade, um, but it's more than just that. So with this panel, um, we it's a, a joint clinical practice guideline of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada and the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology. So on the panel, uh, we had key stakeholder groups, including exercise professionals, midwives, physicians, public health. Um, we also had a lot of input from pregnant women uh, throughout the process. And to be able to, to come up with that very simple set of recommendations that I provided, uh, we developed 12 systematic reviews, which reviewed a ridiculous number of outcomes, uh, looking at pregnancy, labor delivery complications, maternal mental health, fetal growth and development um, that were published as a series of 12 systematic reviews. So back at the time where we started to put together the, um, the guidelines, we were really starting to look at is exercise safe? Is it beneficial? Um, there were still questions about whether or not it was okay to be exercising during pregnancy. And so these reviews were really important. Um, a, that they needed to be done and updated, certainly. Some of them had never been done before. Um, but our reviews found that um, being active during pregnancy had a reduction in the odds of developing gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, gestational hypertension by 40%. Um, we found that maternal depression was reduced by 67%. Um, we found that there was a 32% reduction in the risk of having weight gain above recommended levels, but all of these benefits were derived without having an increased risk of having a small baby, a preterm delivery, or a miscarriage. And so these were really important um, findings to really drive home the um, health benefits, but also the safety of engaging in physical activity. And so that really changed the way that we think about physical activity as a result. Mm. I mean, so exercise is good, right? Basically. And I think to quote you from, again, my podcast stalking, um, you're even saying you're trying to change, I guess, the thought process or the questioning or the themes behind to not is exercise harmful in pregnancy, but, you know, is it harmful not to exercise in pregnancy? And that's where I really feel, you know, your research is, is pushing in the background there and it shows through into the guidelines as well, which is really cool. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's lots of people around the world that are really trying to push the boundaries of what we know. Now that we know that exercise in general is safe and beneficial, we can really target, you know, what's happening with high intensity activity, what's happening with really heavy weightlifting. These are the questions that a subset of the population have zero guidance on. And so because we have this base of information, finally, uh, we can really start to tackle those questions. And I think that's important. Yeah, 100% it is. And um, I don't know if you've read the Australian guidelines. So we've got our own guidelines over here from Mel and Wendy. Um, and it's a little bit different as well, which is, I mean, I think it, it fits with that theme of pushing the boundaries as to what women when they're pregnant um, can and should be doing. But we've got moderate intensity exercise for 2.5 to 5 hours or vigorous intensity exercise for 1.25 to 2.5 hours. And I feel like, and you would be the best to answer this, moderate's always been, I mean, the way I've always thought about it or been told was 
women are allowed to exercise when they're pregnant as long as they can hold a halted conversation. And that would be moderate, intense exercise. But vigorous would be more than that, right? So they are trying mm-hmm. to push the boundaries there too. I've been working with Mal Heyman for a couple of years now, so I'm quite familiar with her work as well as uh, Wendy Browns. And, uh, you know, the work that you're doing in Australia is phenomenal. And I absolutely agree. It's starting to push the boundaries, which I think is really important. Um, in terms of vigorous intensity, you're right. It's, it's much more intense. You know, you're going to be hot and sweaty. You can speak a few words, but you can't necessarily um, say a lot more than that. When we did our guidelines, uh, there was a bit of a debate about the intensity recommendation. So the vast majority of information that is out there is specific to individuals who are doing a walking program or doing sort of a moderate intensity cycling, stationary cycling program. We have much less information um, about the higher intensity, so that higher vigorous intensity activity Um, There's some at the lower end, um, but we don't have a good sense of what the top end of safety actually is. And so in this case, because of that limited recommendation, our panel went a slightly different direction, uh, which was to really focus on that moderate intensity and then make the recommendation that those individuals who want to substantially um, exceed current recommendations, speak with their obstetric healthcare provider to get further advice. You know, we're headed in the same direction. Um, I think we just looked at the evidence and the strength of the evidence that's available at this point in time. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It does. And um, you've done another research paper on contraindications in pregnancy. And again, trying to, I suppose, change what we once thought was a contraindication to potentially not a contraindication, obviously, to increase the exercise, you know, the amount of women who are exercising in their pregnancy. Was there any myths busted there or... Yeah, you know, so the contraindication paper was really interesting. Uh, So if you're not, if your listeners aren't familiar, there are medical conditions called contraindications where physical activity may not be advisable um, due to potential harm to either the mother or the baby. And so there's two types of contraindications. The first is absolute and the second is relative. So absolute contraindications, um, examples would be severe preeclampsia, premature labor, Engaging in moderate or vigorous intensity activity is not advised because there is strong potential for harm, but activities of daily living. So getting up and ambulating, going to get mail, doing some light housework, light gardening, that sort of thing um, is still recommended um, under the direction of their healthcare provider. Uh, In contrast, relative contraindications are these medical conditions where a discussion between the pregnant individual and their healthcare provider is warranted to talk about the the pros versus the cons of uh, physical activity during pregnancy. And in many cases, um, for those individuals, uh, continuing on with physical activity is considered to be safe and beneficial. In some cases, they may need to um, reduce the intensity, duration, or frequency of the activity, maybe not right away, maybe later on, but with relative contraindications, we do recommend a modification before we recommend ceasing all activity like we would with an absolute contraindication. So when we finished the guidelines, people started to ask us a bit more about contraindications. And so most guidelines around the world do have contraindications. 
Most are fairly similar. There might be some differences between some countries say, you know, this one is a con an absolute contraindication. This is a relative. But to that particular point in time, uh, there had never been a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at the empirical evidence that was actually available. Um, most contraindications uh, that are within guidelines are based on expert opinion rather than empirical evidence. And so a year ago, my team reviewed the available evidence about contraindications that are listed by guidelines around the world. And although there's <laughs> fairly limited evidence specific to each of these populations, the information that we found for many contraindications generally showed that physical activity was quite beneficial um, and that the theoretical risks actually had limited or no support. So we published this paper, this review uh, in BJSM. We provided vastly different set of recommendations in terms of the contraindications to prenatal exercise, but there's certainly a lot more work that needs to be done. I know that the, these recommendations have been included in at least two guidelines that have come out since then. We and others around the world are really starting to, again, try and push the boundaries. Look at if you have maternal cardiac or um, cardiac disease during pregnancy, can you do any level of activity? Or are you okay to do brisk walking? Or are you okay to do maybe a little bit more? We have no idea at this point in time. Um, so my team and others are really trying to um, better understand it. And I think that over the next couple of years, we'll have a lot more information to be able to better support women who have these more complex pregnancies. It's so great to have such wonderful information. And I guess part of um, our job in this podcast is to get information that you're creating and you and your team are creating out to our audience as soon as possible. <laughs> That's great for us and all the people interested in this topic. Um, so I can kind of see two barriers. I guess one is if you've got any thoughts for us on how to communicate this well back to our patients um, and motivate them and two, how to communicate this well back to obstetricians and midwives. So other, I guess, you know, healthcare providers that are looking after these pregnant women, because you know, they might just might not be reading it because maybe exercise is kind of not just on their radar like it is us as physios. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a great question, a really important one. Um, you know, it's the reason why I do podcasts and interviews. It is not something that I do naturally or uh, feel super comfortable doing, um, but I'm pushing my own boundaries by doing these things. <laughs> You're doing so well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, as researchers, one of the things that we really have to work on is this idea of knowledge translation. So taking the research, it can't just be passively put into journals and then just let it go and take 15 years to get into clinical practice. I think with the advent of, you know, an increasing use of social media, um, the development of all these great podcasts, including this one, um, that have been coming out really focusing on evidence-based information. Um, you know, that's a, a way that we can get the information directly um, to the pregnant um, individual, to the healthcare providers and the exercise professionals, but they have to be able to find us as well. And so I think that there's, you know, multifaceted approaches and certainly there's other people that are much better um, suited to do this type of work, but I think it's quite complex. And, you know, I, I would say that I have two sort of key thoughts in my mind, whether or not they're right or wrong. Um, but I think the first thing is that we need to make sure that obstetric care providers have sufficient support and training to really initiate the conversations about, you know, exercise. 
So, you know, I'm a big fan of Mal Heyman's work. Um, her work has suggested that the lack of training um, that uh, clinicians are receiving results in either no initiation of a conversation about exercise during pregnancy or really overly cautious exercise recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so we need to, you know, help healthcare providers, exercise professionals to be more aware of um, current recommendations. So here in Canada, uh, I worked with CSEP to develop a um, specialized pre and postnatal exercise training program uh, so that trainers and exercise professionals have that evidence-based information and theoretical background to be able to support um, uh, their pregnant um, uh, clients. I think that we need to sort of take a step back, try and get into medical training uh, as early as we can. Um, I know it's very difficult. We don't talk about exercise a lot um, in, in medical training in Canada, but I do know that there's a big push to change that. And in Canada, we actually, for the first time, had a specific question about the exercise guidelines placed on the qualifying exam for all obstetricians in Canada. Um, this signals the importance of exercise and prescribing exercise during pregnancy. And so if we can start to continue to um, provide some sort of support and training uh, for our healthcare providers, exercise professionals, I think that's really, really key. Mm, absolutely. The that's second great. thing um, that I always like to talk about, you know, I'm a big advocate for the importance of accumulating 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity each week. It helps to drive clinically meaningful benefits. But the reality and the thing that we don't often talk about or we don't talk about enough is that even well below these recommendations, you can get really significant benefits. So for example, based on our systematic reviews, we know that by engaging in at least 10 minutes a day of moderate intensity walking, the odds of developing preeclampsia is reduced by 25%. That's you crazy, bump that up to 15 minutes per day, you'll have an additional benefit, including a 25% reduction in the odds of developing gestational hypertension or gaining above recommendations for gestational weight gain. So trying to get that message that, sure, we have these guidelines, 150 minutes, if you can achieve it, that's fantastic. But if you can't quite get there, you're still going to derive these significant benefits in pregnancy, every minute counts. And activity even well below uh, recommendations can have significant benefits right from conception up to delivery. Amazing. We need marketing involved, Margie. Yes. What we need. We need actually we need I marketers. completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> it, and it does in many ways. It comes down to marketing and awareness. And yeah. um, you know, as a researcher, that is not something that I would do naturally. And you know, there are other people who are starting to try and take that up. And if Good marketing yeah. company involved. Yeah, we need yeah, marketing company and a famous pregnant person. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Endorsed by. Yeah. <laughs> One of the ways that we thought about um, this idea of trying to disseminate information quickly out to people is to hold a conference. So we did it on the female athlete because um, you know, same thing. We're kind of suddenly seeing all these elite athletes um, getting pregnant and continuing to play on and then returning swiftly post um, with probably limited guide guidance on that. 
so we we sort of pulled together a conference to get a lot of health professionals together to start to talk about what is emerging all this research a lot of which you are behind um one that i would love to start talking about is the qualitative study you did on the experience of pregnancy and in the elite athlete population i mean i just love that you start with this interviewing sort of style of research to, to make whatever the recommendations are I think to, again to quote you athlete based um, that just makes so much sense instead of us kind of making it up or assuming given we are not athletes do you want to just talk the audience through that study a little bit sure so I'm what you call a quantitative researcher I deal with numbers I mm-hmm. understand numbers I think in numbers I speak in numbers and so I had the phenomenal opportunity to work with a great colleague within my faculty, uh, Tara McHugh, uh, who is a qualitative researcher. And so she's um, brought me into the world of understanding um, people's stories. And so we had the opportunity to interview and uh, 20 elite athletes. Um, They did these interviews telling us about their experiences with elite sport during pregnancy Uh, at least half had gone to the Olympics. Um, The others were at the top level of their sport. They were phenomenal women. And I wish I could tell you more about them, but I can't (laughs) because it's (laughs) confidential. Mm -hmm. Um, But they had really incredible stories um, telling us about their experiences, but also about, uh, we were quite interested in learning more about the policies and supports that they wish that they had um, that would have helped to support them in combining pregnancy and elite sport. Uh, so that they can help the next generation. And so many of them were talking about, you know, I wish I had this, but for those women that are coming up and they want to become pregnant and have a family and continue in sport, this is what they need. And so they, they really talked to us um, about how difficult it was, how complex it was trying to figure out how to get pregnant and maintain a career. This for many of them was their livelihood. This is what their job in many respects were. And so trying to plan getting pregnant in this, you know, two or three month window in a, in in a between Olympics, they finish one Olympics, they try to get pregnant. If they don't get pregnant, they're going to wait another four years. Mm. Um, So for many of them, it was a heartbreaking if they weren't able to get pregnant right away because they knew they could potentially lose their position on the team. Um, When they did actually become pregnant, they, they told us most of them were telling us stories that they were really nervous. They Many were scared to tell their coaches, their healthcare providers that were working on the team, um, their teammates that they were pregnant because they knew that they would have a chance of losing the position. They thought that they might lose funding because there are not clear policies about what recommendations or what um, policies are in place. and even just simply being more com- less committed, viewed as less committed because they wanted more than just their sport. Um, I'm a former national team athlete. Um, oh. I was, you know, I retired <laughs> in my early 20s. I thought I was old. <laughs> and now I'm having the opportunity to see and work with these women who are continuing into the late 30s, late 40s, having children having families and still being really successful. I wish I had those role models. I would have never retired. <laughs> they, they also provided these great recommendations. Um, at least in Canada, we don't have really strong recommendations and policies in place for pregnant individuals. 
Um, many of them uh, go on what's called an, uh, like this pregnancy card, but it's essentially going to take um, replace an injury card. So if you get injured again later, you only get one. And so you get injured later, you lose all of your funding. That blew my mind. I was like, what? Huh? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's shocking, actually. Um, and there was, um, there have been athletes who have gone and actually publicly fought. Um, and I can, I can speak about this one particular individual because she did go on record and in the media, um, but she actually went to arbitration and she was able to fight so that they were able to get two injury cards, injury or pregnancy cards. Um, so she was one individual who made a huge change here in Canada. Um, so you can only get pregnant once then, is that what we're saying? Cause that's the injury card, pregnancy or injury. You can like, get you injured know? or pregnant once. Now one that's time. slowly starting to change. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the issues that many organizations actually run into is that they have never had a pregnant, um, athlete in their sport before. And so when you have an athlete come and say, Hey, I'm pregnant, what are the guidelines? What's going to happen to me? They just don't know. And so many, you know, are scrambling to try and figure it out. But on your point, you know, you just said, gosh, I wish I'd had those role models. I will, I would not have retired. And I think that point, um, you know, that feels, I guess, strong for us because we do see these women and we're inspired by them. And as mother of girls, I kind of am grateful because for sure they are, inspiring our young girls you know they're kind of just showing them that it can be done no I I totally agree I mean if we want to have more women and girls in sport we have to have those role models to show that it can be done we have to you know normalize pregnancy in sport the athletes were suggesting you know if only I was able to bring my baby to competition to bring my baby to training if only I could bring my partner to this competition, I could make both work. But many of them are being asked to choose between being an athlete and being a mother. And it's really, really difficult. Um, I also have two girls that are seven and 10. And when they were watching the Olympics, they were so excited and they just wanted, well, they wanted to watch or they wanted to be snowboarders. And then they wanted to be um, the soccer players because Canada won gold and, you know, to tell them that you can be any athlete that you want to until the point you want to get pregnant and then your career is over is completely wrong. Yeah. yeah or just don't get injured <laughs> <laughs> and you can only have one baby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Well, well done, I would say, on mm. um, pushing for change in the space of the elite athlete. Watch this space. I'm sure you've got more to come. Do you have more to come? We, so 18 of our, our 20 athletes, um, they had already delivered. Many of them are still, um, training and competing today. And so we have a follow-up study coming out in sports medicine very shortly, um, which is talking about, um, the postpartum experiences, the return to sports, um, experiences for these athletes. Um, they had a lot to say about the postpartum period, um, you know, that we have, very little evidence and very little guidance in pregnancy for elite athletes. We have much less in the postpartum period, although um, there's a number of individuals across the world who are, are really starting to change that and change how we think about and conceptualize return to sport in the postpartum period. 
um, they, they talked about how their bodies just weren't the same anymore and that they needed more time to be able to return to their sport. A lot of them felt pressure that, you know, they're no longer carrying this baby that they have to protect. And so once that happens and they get, you know, a couple of weeks of recovery, maybe two or three, that they feel like they have to return to sport really quickly. But, you know, as physiotherapists and as an exercise physiologist, my PhD was in postpartum exercise. You're not recovered by two, three, six weeks postpartum. It, it, it takes a lot longer than that. And when you're returning to a high level of sport, high impact, high duration, high intensity, you know, it, it does take more time to prevent these injuries. And so unfortunately, many of them did experience some form of injury in the postpartum period. I will see that they'll either go back too hard, too fast and experience issues, or they'll find someone to help guide them, but they don't look at them from the amount of volume that they're coming from. They'll start them so conservatively that it's almost they're under their threshold by far too much. Um, mm -hmm. Even, you know, at least past that kind of initial six to 12 weeks, they're still at such a lower baseline that they could pick it up a little bit faster. But again, we don't really have any guidelines to help, at least from a pelvic floor point of view, but to mm -hmm. help them get back to that level of sport, which again was why we had that conference in Sydney to <laughs> expose more questions rather than give us answers. <laughs> You know, Australia is really ahead of the game thinking about postpartum rehab here in Canada. We don't even conceptualize it. Most women in the postpartum period, most of our athletes that we talk to, one of the most um, life changing and sport changing aspects for their return to sport was actually seeing a pelvic floor specialist. Many of them did not realize that it was going to impact how they performed. Um, and when they did get specialized training and they realized that they, you know, had dysfunction and they treated it, their performance improved again. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, thinking more of return to sport in the postpartum period, you know, pregnancy, the IOC likened it to an injury, childbirth as an injury. And I have some issues with that, but it's an easy way to conceptualize it that, um, you know, pregnancy has a major impact in your physiology when you're pregnant through labor and delivery. And you do have to find a way to rehabilitate your muscles and get it back to where you were over time in the postpartum period. And so it's changing the way that we think. Um, Granny Donnelly has been really strongly advocating for that. There was something on Twitter this morning and I was like, bright and early this morning, tweeting back about it. Um, but I think we need to change again in the postpartum period, how we think about coming back to um, exercise and in sport. Well, she's really good because she's been posting, not posting, but, you know, recently had um, published stuff on looking at women from a biopsychosocial approach, which is what we do in pain, which is what I talked about at the conference, which is what I talk to patients all the time, that it's not just that mm -hmm. level of volume that your body has to readapt to with regards to load and impact from exercise. You're not sleeping, you're not eating, you might be breastfeeding. There's a thousand other things that are going on at the same time. And especially if you have other children running around having to deal with them, getting back to work, the mental load, it's never just about, you know, am I allowed to do 20 minutes of 
some physical activity today. There's so many things that go into it. Do you, are you looking at, or are you currently doing any research looking at helping those guidelines with elite return or return to elite sport postpartum? Like, is there still a 12 week rule? Are you in that space? That's a great question. So uh, you and I are both part of a panel that's starting to look at or doing a, a study. I can't talk too much about it because that's not my, um, I'm not leading that, but um, that's starting to provide stronger evidence in terms of return to running. And I think that, you know, the spring off from that and the next evolution is probably going to have more information on return to sport. Um, in terms of developing specific guidelines for postpartum elite athletes, um, we in Canada uh, have just started the process of developing new postpartum physical activity guidelines. Uh, so we are looking at available evidence, including in the elite athlete population, um, certainly in terms of looking at that early postpartum period, so that like six to 12 week um, point. And then after, so in the later uh, postpartum period, uh, one of the key things that we are going to look at is before 12 weeks and then after 12 weeks to the first year postpartum. The tough thing is that I don't think that there's gonna be a ton of information available to really provide strong recommendations. But one of the nice things about synthesizing the literature and providing these guidelines is that it really clearly shows where the gaps are and it becomes more of a call to research for other researchers and clinicians to better understand this. Um, if we don't know where we're going um, or the, the key questions that we absolutely have to answer to provide these evidence-based recommendations, um, then we're not gonna get there. And unfortunately, you know, in 20 years um, since our, our first uh, Canadian guideline, we haven't made a ton of progress. Most of the progress that's been coming has been really over the last three or four years. Yep. There's lots of momentum. We've just got to keep going, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Luckily, there's lots of brilliant uh, individuals that are around the world, including maybe a few on this call that are, are really starting <laughs> to push that. And I think it's important. We need more we need more people in the area. We need broader perspectives. I have a very, um, you know, I'm an exercise physiologist. I come at it from a very distinct background. And I think the more people that we have coming into the area, it's, it's just really going to change things. Back when I did my PhD in the late 2000s, like 2005 to 2010, nobody else was thinking about postpartum exercise. It's this forgotten child, but that's changing, which is amazing. Just a, a small aside um, and kind of going back to the pregnancy section, which we don't have to get into too many details, but you talk about like there being gaps in the research. One of the big gaps tends to be around the guidance for strength training within pregnancy and the return postpartum. Are you doing any research in this area? <laughs> um, yes, actually. Um <laughs> <laughs> so you're absolutely right, Lori. There was a major gap in terms of strength training. So one of the critiques that we get about um, the recommendations for the 2019 guidelines is that in terms of strength training, all we said is that you should do it. And that's really nice. That's really easy. But it doesn't provide a lot of information to guide um, prescription in that area. And the reason for it is that there is so limited in information available that we simply couldn't. 
and nobody really should at this point. When we talk about resistance training, often the studies are in combination with aerobic activity. We don't have any information about heavy lifting in pregnancy, right? So we're, we're interested in pushing the limits. Most published studies that are out there are looking at resistance training uh, using light resistance bands, or at best, maybe a moderate intensity of lifting, um, but sort of pushing those boundaries um, beyond that, that information really isn't there. Now, part of the problem is occupational activity. There are these recommendations, you really shouldn't lift over 20 pounds. Um, my team published a systematic review a couple of years ago now, which um, found that there was an increased risk of miscarriage and preeclampsia for individuals lifting more than 11 kilos per time. I don't believe that occupational activity and recreational lifting are equated. I think they're very different. One, you, I know, shocking, right? <laughs> so exciting, um, though, to hear you say that, because it's so true. <laughs> it is. I mean, if you, if you think about recreational lifting, if you're going to lift, you're going to do it with proper technique. You're going to do it with proper breathing. You're going to do it with, you know, appropriate rest. Whereas if you're at work, you're probably just going to pick up the package with really bad form, at least I do. And then you just take it to wherever it needs to go. And you don't really think about it as much. Um, but I, I, you know, but the problem with having this occupational limit of 20 pounds, which wherever that came from, is that it prevents researchers from actually doing the mm. heavy lifting mm. work. So I have a study that just went through ethics. It took me almost six months to be able to argue that the, the, the intensity of lifting that we're talking about is actually not that heavy. So Laurie and I have a paper where we did a survey um, looking at individuals who lifted heavy during pregnancy. It's not released, so I can't talk about it too much, really. Um, needs to go through peer review, but they did. And Christina will be on the podcast talking about it. Oh, as soon as we can. As, yeah, as soon as, as, soon as we can. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A large proportion of the population um, of women who are doing, you know, things like CrossFit or they're doing weightlifting or powerlifting and they want to continue it during their pregnancy. And we're telling them, nope, you probably shouldn't lift over 20 pounds as soon as you become pregnant. Well, the problem with that is that you're essentially going to be detraining these women from doing this fabulous heavy lifting before, as soon as they become pregnant, they stop, they stop for nine months. Um, and the mental health implications are just going to be really profound. And it's based on theoretical risk, not empirical evidence. And so I'm pretty excited for this um, survey to eventually get out. Um, because I think that's going to start to open up the opportunity to do additional work. Yeah. And Tam, when you I'm asked how sure heavy, your question. No, you, you did, it was perfect. Um, and then Tam said, how heavy is heavy? And I think we decided oh, greater than 80% of um, one rep max or body weight. I can't remember. We did have a discussion oh, about heavy. it. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, can I also yeah, ask? 80% one rep max. Yeah. Um, but we also looked at the, the, how much they lifted against their body weight. Yeah. It was substantial. Heavy. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Like yeah, amazing. heavier than I ever imagined anybody who was pregnant would actually be lifting except mm. for what you see on Instagram. And we had what almost 700 individuals respond. Mm, it's yeah. incredible. Amazing. And one other silly question. I know I could Google it. How many kilos is 20 pounds? Does anyone know? Well, that, well she said about 11 kilos. Didn't you Got say it. that? 11 kilos. Yeah, 11 kilos. Yeah. Maggie, can I just bring up one in between topic, the topic of birth? <laughs> 
the thing that happens <laughs> after pregnancy before postpartum. If we were to talk about the elite population again or, or, or super high intense exercises and birth outcomes, so there was that one recent study and they looked at that exact question. So do elite female athletes have different birth outcomes to the general population? And then they had a moderate intense group and then a high intense group. And they didn't find any difference in birth outcomes. By birth outcomes, we mean length of second stage, instrumental deliveries, emergency C-section rates, etc. The elite sporting population did stop exercising their chosen in their chosen sport at four and a half months pregnant so I guess that poses a new question which is what happens if they kept going (laughs) and birth do you have any thoughts on that in our qualitative interviews we often heard from athletes that the lack of guidelines and research supporting high intensity and or long duration activities for athletes um, really made them question about whether or not they could or should participate in um, their training throughout the duration of their pregnancy. And so because we don't have really strong guidance available for them, many of them are going to. Um, And so In 2021, we published a systematic review that was looking at the impact of elite sport participation in pregnancy, uh, very similar to the uh, Sugurda Tor paper. Um, We we found that elite athletes had, you know, reduced odds of having back pain during pregnancy, increased odds of gaining weight above recommendations. Um, All the other pregnancy outcomes were not different between the groups. Um, between the elite athletes or less active individuals. But surprisingly, across all of these papers, there was extremely limited information about their training volumes. Um, We know that some did capture it. They just didn't um, present it uh, in a way that we could use it in the paper. Um, We also know that there are lots of athletes who are continuing to train right up until delivery. We see it in the media. We see it in social media. We just don't have the research out there. Uh, So unfortunately, at this point in time, uh, I'm not aware of any information that provides really strong um, description of, um, you know, there's case studies, certainly, but in larger populations of pregnant individuals describing what the training volume was um, across pregnancy and even comparing between those who continue to exercise during the pregnancy and those who reduce their, their intensity or duration or, or whatever else. So there's a ton of work that really needs to be done um, in this space. Um, but the evidence that we have right now is that um, basically if you're an elite athlete and you're participating in sports, birth outcomes are pretty similar uh, to what you would expect in less active individuals. I wanted to know in the postpartum qualitative study um, about any comments on their challenges with breastfeeding and returning to sport or their, any issues with that. Many of our postpartum individuals did want to continue breastfeeding um, in the postpartum period. Some of them found that uh, they did need to stop, that their energy levels were too low. Um, some developed some stress fractures, which, um, you know, is obviously if you're losing calcium, you're going to have some potential issues. Uh, and so they stopped. What many of them were asking for is that they didn't feel that they had really strong support or guidance in terms of how to breastfeed and breastfeed over the longer term while they were actually um, doing this high level of training. 
we don't have a lot of information. We know in the you know, general population of postpartum individuals that exercise at moderate to vigorous levels um, does not alter the composition of the breast milk. Um, it doesn't alter the taste. There were some early concerns about that, yeah. but the evidence that we have right now is certainly limited, certainly not in elite populations. Um, but um, the information that we have at the current time is that um, moderate to vigorous intensity activity doesn't alter breast milk composition or taste. Um, but specific to elite athletes, uh, they really didn't have a lot of information and didn't feel supported in terms of what they could or should do um, to be able to support their activities. Yeah, no surprises there, I suppose. Um, I just was interested in how many had the sort of, I suppose, energy deficit going on with, um, obviously it requires a lot of energy to make milk. It's only so much food you can eat. And, you know, how many of them did struggle keeping up their milk supply whilst training? So, I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of three individuals that, that did talk about how they needed to cease breastfeeding because of fatigue and not being able to um, keep up their supply. Yeah. That being said, it could have been a larger proportion of the population. Uh, we didn't specifically ask them um, uh, about that too much, um, but certainly it did come through in, in certain cases. Based on kind of all the stuff that we've talked about today, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or add before we get you back on? We, we've talked about how it's really important to screen for medical and obstetric contraindications uh, such as severe preeclampsia or intrauterine growth restriction where exercise would not be recommended. Um, we know that this should be done in early pregnancy and then repeated multiple times throughout pregnancy, anytime that health status is actually changing. So traditionally, pregnant women were told that they need to go and speak to the healthcare provider before starting um, or continuing to exercise during pregnancy. And this really became a major barrier to physical activity. Uh, so I want to, part of my knowledge translation, um, you know, talk about this new screening tool that we've developed called the Get Active Questionnaire for Pregnancy, which is specifically designed to help with this. Um, pregnant individuals fill this out, this document out to identify whether or not they should speak to their healthcare provider about physical activity. Uh, for the vast majority of individuals, um, they don't need to speak to their provider. They can continue to be active, um, you know, right from conception until delivery. Um, and, but it removes a major barrier to exercise, allowing them to derive these health benefits of activity without stopping for, you know, potentially a couple of weeks at a time. Uh, so this document is freely available and has been endorsed by multiple international organizations, um, including ISPMPA and the American College of Sports Medicine. Amazing. So this is something that it? we can mm. we can give our patients, like that we can use What's the tool as as yeah, women's health physios. Yes, cool. Yep. I've, mm -hmm. I've got the link up now and any of the links and any of the papers and any of the things that we talk about uh, in the show notes, there'll be um, links to all of those things. So I'll put the awesome. link in for that and any information, email addresses, any place you want to direct people, just give me the links and then I will make sure everyone has them. Okay. Yay. Yay. We promise to start using your screening tool, Margie. We will. I'll we'll we'll post translation it on social media. Oh. <laughs> So there is actually, um, Mel and Wendy developed one specific to Australia. Uh -huh, um, okay. So 
Yeah, it's um, a three-pager. I'm not sure where it's available. Um, yeah, but if you were to contact Mel, I know yeah. she'd happily pass it along. I shall do that now. Um, oh, that is so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's late, but I, again, I'm so jealous and I hope that I know we, you and I will probably talk relatively soon, but hopefully I will see you in person one day at your cottage. Oh, that'd be great. So. Thank you so much. I really appreciate <laughs> right. the opportunity to do this and so nice to meet you. Nice and, to meet uh, you, Maggie. We'll yeah. chat soon. See you. Bye. You were going to ask some more pelvic floor stuff that I said that we probably wouldn't be able to get into, but this could be a really good opportunity if you wanted to. I'll mention the pelvic floor stuff. I think with that, yeah, and it wasn't going to be a question so much for Margie because obviously I know she's not a pelvic floor or pelvic health physio, which is where my question was going to come from. But it's Mm. more, I suppose that I was just excited to see pelvic floor exercise in that guideline because at least it makes everyone aware of the importance of thinking about the pelvic floor. Once I started delving into it, not so much um, the Canadian guidelines because um, they were just do pelvic floor exercise essentially, but the Australian did have links into different bits of or or, um, what they suggested we should do for pelvic floor exercise in pregnancy. And it was quite a lot as it usually is, right? So it's squeeze and lift hold for eight seconds and then let go eight to 10 reps, three sets. And obviously amazing that we're thinking about it and all well and good for those that um, know how to do it. And in fact, Margie's guideline was awesome and that she wrote instruction in proper technique recommended, which absolutely, Mm. you know, is amazing. But of course, with a guideline, we absolutely cannot expect everyone in Canada and Australia to have an internal in order to figure out whether they are moving their pelvic floor absolutely properly. Clinically, what we see, which I'm sure you see too, Laurie, is that sometimes when you do not perform these exercises correctly, then they tend to sometimes maybe become a little tight in places. Um, And that tightness, although we're not sure, but can actually potentially link into things like stress urinary incontinence, which we're trying to prevent in the Mm. first place because the pelvic floor then doesn't move all that well. Also things like pelvic girdle pain and obviously what Joe's researching currently and that's birth outcomes because of course we want the pelvic floor during birth to be distensible so it was more amazing that it's in in the in the guideline but obviously if at all possible you know seeking that individual um assessment so that we know exactly where each and every pelvic floor is at would be awesome Mm. And the focus on the drop and open. As I was going to say, or the very link. least, yeah, mm, being able to of, balance. Yeah, relaxation. balance. I like yeah. that. Not just the then let go and then squeeze and lift again. Hold, 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 then let go. I really yeah. like to focus, yeah, on that drop and open. Mm. Um, there, was, there was some research, and I think she touched on it too, but there was other research as well where there was that worry in elite athletes that they would have too much pelvic floor muscle tension and tone and it would affect their ability to give birth, but it was mm-hmm. found not to. Not, no. Yeah. Um, any thoughts, Joe, on all the stuff that we just spoke about with Margie? Other than no. that, she's so lovely and all Canadians mm. are obviously amazing. Really? Aren't they? Aren't they, really? I mean, I think the more... I- 
more I'm getting into the depths of this research, the more I am appreciating researchers <laughs> because it's just unbelievably um, intricate, Taxing. the detail. And when she mm. starts to talk about that grade analysis, I sort of part wanted to chime in a little bit and sort of say, now, listen, you're telling me that you use that grade analysis of which I've looked at. Have you used that to do it like analyze a paper? It's like a way to analyze a paper if you're going to do a systematic review. Mm, yeah, I didn't have to do a systematic review because there wasn't enough research in my area. <laughs> oh, like, oh man, damn, whoopsies. <laughs> um, I was bad. started to go down that path as per recommendation and I was like, mm, this can take me like a year just to do a systematic review. And the fact she's done 12 and I can't even imagine how many papers that is um, to analyze in the level of detail blows my mind <laughs> yep. mm. I don't know how you did that and all those words to me just are nothing you are one <laughs> yeah, of those like, now yeah <laughs> Joe you are one of those now and look yay, yay. smile everyone <laughs> I think oh no I didn't even take it <laughs> oh no take a smile. little yeah. <laughs> okay hopefully we've got look now we have our photo <laughs> we have a photo of us <laughs> together so if you aren't a patient of mine and you haven't gone back and listened to the episode on the Empowered Motherhood program, listen up. Actually, everyone listen up because this is amazing. The Empowered Motherhood program is an incredible online program and mobile app that combines physio-led exercise and expert education for every stage of pregnancy, birth, and the postnatal journey. It's created by the Australian Physiotherapy Association's titled Women's Health Physiotherapist, Liz Evans, and Pregnancy and Postnatal Exercise Specialist and former elite netball athlete, Kimmy Smith. It has week-by-week -week programs which start from five weeks of pregnancy all the way through to the first year postpartum. Alongside Kimmy and Liz, the EMP includes expert interviews with an obstetrician, psychologist, dietitian, midwife, and more. The pregnancy program has been created with up-to-date medical pregnancy guidelines and includes a combination of strength, Pilates, cardio, and bar classes, but I know some people call them barre, but with a French background, seriously, it's bar. Um, yoga, guided meditation, a program for women experiencing pelvic girdle pain, and a complete birth preparation series, which includes physio-led birth prep classes, as well as expert interviews and education. The postnatal program is designed to be started from birth and their birth recovery program includes both vaginal and C-section week-by-week recovery programs. It includes functional progressive exercises to help women return to exercise safely and confidently. It has programs for pelvic organ prolapse, pelvic floor injuries such as incontinence and obstetric injuries such as anal sphincter tearing, as well as a complete eight-week return to running program. They offer a free trial for maternal health care providers, so you can look around the app and you can also have the option to list your clinic on the Empowered Motherhood program, find a physio page, so you can receive referrals from their members. So head to empoweredmother.com.au or look for the link on the show notes.